Well, hey, everyone. Uh, My name is Norton, and you're listening to the New Denver Church Podcast. And today we are wrapping up our journey through the book of Leviticus. So this is part 13b, the final installment of You Lost Me at Leviticus. You made it. We are at the end today. So we're going to do two things. Uh, We're going to explore the final chapter of the book of Leviticus, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a bit. Uh, But first, as we come to the end of the book, I wanted to share something with you that's really unique and fascinating about the book of Leviticus, but I need to start really broad. Uh, We need to talk about the Old um, Testament, the entire Old Testament for just a little bit. There are four dominant stories or narratives in the Old Testament. Uh, Four stories uh, or storylines about God's relationship with people. Now, of course, the Old Testament contains hundreds of little micro stories, right? About individuals and families and villages and battles and prayers and songs and celebrations and tragedies, right? And and most of them are related uh, to the people of Israel. But if you put all of those together, you really have four overarching stories, four dominant narratives that are woven throughout all of the writings and all of the books of the Old Testament. The first is the creation story. And here's how I would summarize it. It's the story of God making people in his image to do his work. And of course, this is really clear in Genesis, right? This is the place where you see the creation story the most clear when God first makes human beings and it says that he made them men and women in his image and then he gives them the task of cultivating this garden where he has put them and being stewards over all of the earth. And this is really important work. They are doing work on his behalf But it's not just Genesis where you see this story. You see this creation language all throughout the Old Testament. You see it a lot in the Psalms. Uh, You see this idea in the stories of some of the people or the leaders that God raises up to do important work. You see it in the stories of the artists, right, who make beautiful things. In the story of, of common people that God from time to time uses to do extraordinary things or create extraordinary new possibilities. This is the creation story that's woven throughout the Old Testament. The second story or storyline is the Exodus story. This is a story of God rescuing people from oppression to freedom. And of course, it's grounded in the event of the actual exodus, right? This event that looms so large over all of Israel's history. Um, But it's a story that also emerges in other parts of the Old Testament. It emerges through the laws of Israel, Right? There's all these laws they're given to, to, that are designed to, to care for the vulnerable and, and give justice to those who are oppressed and, and create a new kind of society where people are not oppressed. Right, It's found in the story of Ruth or the story of Esther. It's found in every story. The Exodus story is every story where God hears the cries of his people and then fights on their behalf. That's the Exodus story. The third story is the exile story. 
And if the exodus looms large over Israel's history, so does the exile. This is the story of God bringing people home from alienation. And this, too, is, is, is grounded in that historical event, right? The, the Babylonian exile, we've talked about that a bit, where the nation of Israel was destroyed and the people were taken far from their homes. But it's not just in that event. You start reading through the Old Testament again and you see the story of exile everywhere. I mean, you see it in the beginning of Genesis, right? Humanity is exiled from the Garden of Eden. And it's like humans are always trying to get back to the garden. They're longing to return home to the way it was always meant to be. You see it in all sorts of other stories. Jacob and his family, they have to flee their homes in in Palestine, right? Because of famine, they end up in Egypt, but that's not really their home. That's how Israel actually ends up in a place that is not their home. Moses lives most of his life in exile, right? The people of Israel are exiled a number of times before the actual Babylonian exile. The Psalms lament a life lived in exile. Listen to this, Psalm 137. This is about the Babylonian exile. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, Zion would have been their home. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? There's this deep lament about being away from home. So there's the creation story, there's the Exodus story, there's the exile story. And then the fourth story or storyline in the Old Testament is the cleansing story, which is simply God cleansing people of their sin. It's the reality that people don't only need to be liberated and brought back home. They need to be made clean. They need to be made whole again. They they need to be transformed into his holy people. We need to be forgiven. We need to be made new. We need to be made right with God. And you could call this the atonement story. I, I like the word cleansing better because... It captures the Hebrew meaning of the word, um, and it captures this idea well. I mean, we all know what it's like to be dirty, right? To be physically dirty and in need of being made clean. Some people have called this the priestly story, because in the community of Israel, it was the priests who played this role in helping people bring their sin to God, confess their sin, and experience God's cleansing and forgiveness. And so all four of these storylines are woven throughout the Old Testament because ultimately the Old Testament is about God and people. And God is the great creator. He creates people in his image to do his work. He's the great liberator. He rescues people from oppression to freedom. He's the great restorer. He brings people home from alienation and he's the great cleanser or healer, or forgiver. He cleanses people of their sin, forgives them, and makes them whole again. These are the dominant storylines of the Old Testament. And here's the thing. Here's why I'm telling you all this. I think, and I hope that you're beginning to see now, that the book of Leviticus 
narrates all four of these stories, maybe better and maybe more comprehensively than any other book in the Old Testament. I mean, Leviticus is it's clearly about cleansing, right? All of the instructions, the tedious instructions we read about sacrifices and confessing sin and, and the rituals they did and the priests and the purity laws and the day of cleansing, right? I mean, think about the day of cleansing. This is where it's described in depth, one day a year where everyone is made clean and forgiven and given a new start. It's also called the day of atonement. I mean, Leviticus, if there's any book in the whole Old Testament, it's Leviticus is at the center of the cleansing narrative or, or this priestly story in the Old Testament. And, and that's what people think of first and foremost when they think of the book of Leviticus. That's what it's about. It's about being made clean. But as we've seen, Leviticus also flows directly out of the Exodus story. I mean, over and over and over and over, God says, don't forget that I rescued you from Egypt and that I am freeing you to live a new life, to create a new society that's going to be totally different than the oppressive one that I rescued you from. So so Leviticus flows out of the Exodus story. And then as we talked in depth last time about this, Leviticus is also an exile story. So much of what we see when we get to the end of this book is explaining the exile, explaining what went wrong, explaining how Israel got so far away from the life and the land that God had given them. But don't forget this, Leviticus is about the creation story too. I mean, remember back in part 1b, which feels like years and decades ago, right? Part 1b, uh, where we saw how much the creation story shapes the book of Leviticus, that all of these elaborate discussions of what's happening in the tabernacle, remember, the tabernacle is all about creation. The rituals that are supposed to be done there, they reflect Genesis 1, right? They reflect the days of creation from Genesis and, and all the discussion about the Sabbath. The Sabbath reflects the seventh day when God rested from his work. And there's this idea all throughout Leviticus that, that our work and what we do is meaningful, but, but rest is meaningful too, and we need this balance of it, and, and that everything that Israel is doing is representing God. They're just representing God in the world. They're representing his image, his character. They are going to embody to the world who God is like and what God is like, which is exactly what the creation story is about, Adam and Eve are made to embody, to give flesh to. They're made in the image of God. And then they're told to rule and cultivate in the garden and in the world on behalf of God. And so it's like over and over and over, you get through Leviticus and it's clearly telling this this cleansing story. God is cleansing and purifying his people so that they can be made whole and be made holy in the world. But it's always going back to the creation story, the intent that God had in creation for all of humanity. It's always grounded in the exile story, and it's always looking forward, uh, or sorry, it's grounded in the Exodus story, and it's always looking forward 
to the exile story. All four stories are central to Leviticus. And because all four stories are are central to who God is, to what he's doing in the Old Testament, to his relationship with his people and the kind of holy people that they are to be in the world, then I might argue there's maybe no better book in the Old Testament to understand all of these things than the book of Leviticus. Now, one more insight about all of this and and then we'll move on. Um, Do you know what Jesus does when he shows up? In Israel, as a rabbi, Jesus is constantly interacting with all four of these narratives because they form the bedrock of the Jewish imagination, of the Jewish understanding of of who God is and their place and their identity in the world. And so Jesus is constantly engaging these four narratives, these four stories, Think about how much time he spends with people who are considered unclean and how when they're with them, when they're with him, they are made clean. They're made new. And how Jesus becomes known as the great high priest. And we saw last week, um, or, or one of the previous messages, Jesus' very first sermon is from Isaiah. It's an exile text addressing the exile story from the book of Isaiah where where Jesus basically is saying he has good news for the poor. He has good news for the outcasts. He has good news for the exiles. And let's not forget that that Jesus' some of Jesus' most famous stories, right, are about a shepherd who goes and searches for a lost sheep, a sheep who's far away from home, or about a wayward son who comes home to a loving father. It's like Jesus is the shepherd who searches for the sheep. Jesus is the father who welcomes the wayward son home. This is exile story through and through. Jesus is also the great liberator. He's like a new Moses who's bringing a new law. There's no coincidence that in Matthew, Jesus goes up onto a mountain and delivers his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. He's like the new Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's constantly referring back to the law of Moses, but then he's expanding on it. He's like the new liberator for Israel. And then, of course, he's crucified. On Passover, the central event of the Exodus, right? Jesus is clearly the Passover lamb who is liberating his people, those who are going to trust in him. And then Jesus is bringing new creation. I mean, if you read John's gospel, it's like John is intent on telling a new creation story about Jesus. New creation language is woven all throughout, and we talked about that in an earlier podcast, how there's seven signs, and and, and Jesus is interacting seven times with the rituals that are happening in Israel. There's all these sevens that are calling back to the creation story. And then, of course, Jesus rises from the dead on what day? The eighth day. 
a new day in a new creation week. It's no coincidence that John points out his tomb where he rises from the dead. It's in a garden and Mary Magdalene mistakes him for a gardener. And you see, Jesus is the good news in all four of these stories. He is the one who cleanses. He is the one who liberates. He is the one who restores. He is the one who is bringing new creation. And so if you want to understand who Jesus is, if you want to understand his good news that he brings and that he offers, then we need to better understand these four stories. Sometimes we just focus on one of these stories, but we need to understand all four of them. And there's maybe no better place to understand these and the setting that Jesus is stepping into and engaging than the book of Leviticus. And so even as we come to the end of this book, if you want to keep going, if you want to go deeper, start rereading Leviticus. Maybe read one of the gospel accounts along with it and look for allusions to the creation story or to the exodus story or to the exile story or to the cleansing story. And if you want to make this really personal, start asking yourself this, what am I longing for in my life right now? Because it's probably one of these four things. Are you longing for more meaning And purpose? That's a creation story longing. Are you longing for rescue, for liberation from something that is keeping you down? Maybe it's an addiction or something that's oppressing you. That's an Exodus story longing. Are you longing to come home? Do you feel like you're far away from your true self, from God, from from a sense of home or family, that's an exile story longing. Are you wanting to be made clean? Are you wanting to get cleaned up? Are you carrying guilt and shame? Do you need to be forgiven? Do you feel like something is broken and you want and long to be made whole and pure again? That's a cleansing story longing. And yes, (laughs) Leviticus can be a tough book to read because it is so culturally different from where we live. But as you start diving deep into it, you begin to see it really is about all four of these longings. All right. With all of that said, let's move to the end of the book. Now, in part 13, I said that there were two endings to the book of Leviticus. Uh, If you haven't listened to that, the last message, um, you need to listen to that first, part 13. This is 13b. Uh, So the two endings to the book of Leviticus, there's chapter 26, which is this long chapter of blessings and consequences. If you follow all the instructions in Leviticus, here's all the blessings that are going to follow. If you don't follow the instructions, if you don't follow the teachings of Leviticus, here are all the consequences. Here's everything that's going to go wrong in your life and your community and your nation if you abandon God and ignore his teaching. Now, uh, quick side note, um, it's not always this way in the short term, is it? 
I mean, maybe you were thinking in that last message with chapter 26, sometimes people ignore God's teaching and they ignore God's instructions. Sometimes people do all the wrong things and it still seems like they come out on top. It still seems like they're able to get ahead. And then there's other people who do all the right things. They're faithful to God. They follow all the rules and things don't go well. They always finish last. And in fact, what you see in some of the Psalms of the Old Testament is this very complaint to God. The psalmist saying or praying or, or crying out to God, hey, I did everything wrong and he, or, or I did everything right and he did everything wrong or she did everything wrong. So why do they keep getting richer and I keep getting poorer, Right? You see this in these prayers and these laments, and and sometimes they're sung in songs. Why do the faithful sometimes suffer, and the people who are unjust, why are they the ones that keep getting rewarded? And it's this this cry for fairness, God. It's, It's like a kid saying to their parent, and we've all done this, right? It's just not fair. In fact, this is the book of Job. Right? Job does everything right. He's faithful and he's just, and yet all these terrible things keep happening to him. And so the Old Testament acknowledges that this is the reality sometimes, that sometimes you do everything right and you're not rewarded, at least in the short term. And sometimes the people who do everything wrong, it seems like they are the ones that are rewarded. Everything goes their way, again, at least in the short term. But here's the deal. There's also a sense in the Bible that that's the exception, that that situation is not the rule, that that's not the way it usually works. And when it does happen that way, when it's not fair, when you do everything and there aren't rewards, and when the people who do all the wrong things do get rewarded, that that it's altogether good and right to come to God in those moments and complain to him and say, it's not fair. Can you intervene, God? Can you do something about this, God? And sometimes God says back to us, maybe it's just a whisper, I hear you. And I see what you're going through. And I know that it doesn't seem fair. And so for now, you're going to have to persevere. And you're going to have to trust me. That in the long term, your faith and your perseverance will indeed be rewarded. And this is the message of the Psalms. This is the message of Job But don't forget, the overwhelming picture of the Bible portrays that on the whole, if you do follow God's instructions, it will produce fruit in your life. It will lead to some measure of blessing. It will lead to some measure of flourishing. It will bring some kind of peace. It will create better relationships. And so we need a balance when we think about this whole concept. You can't come to a passage like Leviticus 26 and say, well, see, it says right there, if you just follow all of God's instructions, he's always going to make you rich. He's always going to give you lots of children. You're always going to have success and prosperity, and you'll never suffer if you just follow God's instructions. 
And if you do experience suffering, if you can't have children, if you don't get rich, if you don't prosper, then clearly you're just not following God's instructions. Right? We can't say that. There's a a group of people, um, they're called prosperity preachers, and that's basically what they say. That, that, That... if you follow God's instructions, you'll always get rich and prosper. And if you're not rich and prospering, then clearly you're not following God's instructions. And part of the reason they say that is they want you to give all of your money to them. And part of the reason I think they say that is just because they pick certain passages in the Bible that sound good to them. And then all the passages that talk about sacrifice and hardship and endurance and lament, well, those don't sound very good, so let's just skip those, right? But that's crazy. You can't just pick and choose what sounds good and throw out what doesn't. But here's the opposite danger. And this is why I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on it. The opposite danger would be to react so strongly against prosperity preachers that we would ignore passages like Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 is another one or Psalm 119. Or the entire book of Proverbs, passages that basically say, on the whole, in the long run, following God's instructions and God's teaching is a better way to live, and it will often produce fruit in our lives. And when we find ourselves experiencing hardship, when we find ourselves in the middle of a wilderness experience, when we find ourselves with this sense of exile, of lost of losing or having lost our way, then there is a good chance we need to take seriously the possibility that is strong that perhaps we've abandoned God, that perhaps we weren't following his teaching. Perhaps all of our decisions are now catching up to us. And so that's Leviticus 26. It's like a warning, and as we said, it's like this explanation to the people in in exile, right? And it feels like that should be the end of the book, this really stern warning. Follow all these instructions, and things will go well. Don't follow them, and things will go very badly. And then it says at the very end of the chapter, chapter 26, last verse, verse 46, these are the decrees the laws and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. And that sounds like the end, right? Done. Book of Leviticus, over. Those are all the laws and regulations. But then there's another chapter. (laughs) Chapter 27. And when you read chapter 27, it feels like an extra chapter that doesn't really need to be in there. It almost feels like an appendix. It feels like something that was added on or tacked on that wasn't really necessary. I mean, on the surface, it doesn't have anything to do with chapter 26. It's about these promises or gifts that you give to God or that you make at the tabernacle and you give to the priests. And so, Here's what we're going to do. Uh, We're going to quickly take a look at this chapter, and I'll explain a few of the things in the chapter and what they're about and what it's teaching, and then we'll wrap up with this question. Why is this in here? Why does this seem added on or tacked on to what should have been the real, you know, powerful, thundering ending of Leviticus? 
Why is this the last thing that we're supposed to read in the book? So let's jump in. Uh, Chapter 27, verse 1 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord. So let's pause right there. What it's saying is there are times where you make a promise. I'll use the word promise and vow interchangeably. I think we use promise a lot more in our culture. But you make a promise to give something or to someone to God. This is what it's talking about. Whenever you promise to give something or give someone to God. And we have actually some really good examples of this in the Old Testament. Uh, 1 Samuel 1, I've mentioned this one before. There's a woman named Hannah. She can't have children. Uh, So she keeps trying over and over and she's heartbroken. And so she says to God, if you will give me a son, I will give my son back to you. I will dedicate, I'm promising or vowing to dedicate his life to you if you'll give me a son. Uh, Here's another example. In Judges 11, there's this guy named Jephthah. And he makes a promise or vow to God that if God helps him win victory in battle, he's about to go into battle, if God helps him win victory, that when he comes back to his home, whatever comes out of his door first to greet him, he'll offer as a sacrifice to God. And he's thinking that one of his goats is going to walk out first or one of his sheep is going to come running out the way it usually does when he's you know, coming home. And so he's going to offer whatever walks out of the door first. This is his promise or vow to God as a sacrifice to God if God gives him victory in battle. Um, or here's another example. 1 Samuel 14, uh, King Saul um, also makes a promise or vow to God. He and his army are entering into battle, and he promises his entire army will fast from all food before the battle. They're going to fast, and this is their way of showing their dedication to God. Um, Never mind that it's a good idea (laughs) to have a full stomach when you go into battle. It usually makes you stronger, but Saul has this idea, we're all going to fast, we're not going to eat any food before we go into a battle, and this is our way of showing our resolve, and God will help us win the battle. And uh, if anyone doesn't follow this rule... If anyone in his entire army does not take this seriously and does not fast, his promise or vow to God is that that person will be killed as punishment for not taking this vow seriously. Now, here's what's interesting. The Old Testament portrays these three different vows in different ways. And wouldn't you know it, uh, the woman comes out looking a lot better than the two guys. So God blesses Hannah with a child. She's clearly this person of deep faith. And when she has a son, she takes him to the temple and she fulfills her vow. She gives her son to God. And, 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 and we do, just so you know, we do child dedication in our church. But her kind of child dedication is the real deal. She does not go home with her son. She literally gives her son to the temple and to the priests there for him to grow up and be raised by the priests and to become a priest himself and to give his entire life to serving God. And her son's name is Samuel and he actually becomes this amazing leader for Israel. He is the one for whom first and second Samuel is named after. Jephthah, on the other hand, from the book of Judges, is portrayed 
as being really foolish because he's victorious in battle. He makes this promise to God. Anything that walks out of the door when I come home, I'm going to sacrifice to you, God. And he gets home and his daughter comes running out to meet him first. And what follows in Judges 11 is probably one of the most dark and tragic stories in the entire Bible of stubborn Jephthah keeping his promise and sacrificing his own daughter. It's a crazy, and quite honestly, it is a deeply unsettling story. And then in Saul's case, Saul wins his battle, um, but we find out that his son Jonathan, who later is a hero, uh, his son Jonathan didn't ever hear the story about fasting from food. His son Jonathan actually eats some food, and when Saul finds out, Saul stubbornly decides he's going to keep his vow to God, and he almost kills his own son. But fortunately, his men intervene, and they're able to talk Saul out of doing this. And so the lesson in all of these stories Um, I mean, one of the lessons might be don't make any promises or vows to God, right? Um, But, you know, the bigger lesson is more descriptively, less prescriptively, is sometimes we make promises to God, and sometimes they're good promises that we can keep, and they're made from a healthy and a good place, and sometimes they're really foolish promises that we never should have made in the first place because we can't really keep them. But if you break a promise to God, isn't that bad? So what do you do if you make a silly promise like Jephthah did, and you don't want to break your promise to God, but it was clearly a foolish and silly promise in the first place, and that's what Leviticus 27 is addressing. Here's how you need to think about these promises or these vows that you make to God. And believe it or not, Leviticus 27 is actually offering a way to renegotiate your promises in a healthy way. So maybe you vow to dedicate one of your children to God if God gives you a child, and then when your child comes, you realize it was a foolish vow. I can't give this child away. Not because I would just miss him, but because our family needs this child. It would actually do more harm to our family to give this child away. And so you don't want to break your promise. And so what Leviticus 27 is saying right here in the beginning is you can actually give to the sanctuary or the temple or the priests there. Instead of giving your child to God, you've dedicated your child to God, you can give an equivalent amount of money instead. And it goes on to actually give numbers of how much money you can give for each child that you've dedicated to God. And it's a way of saying, I'm going to keep my promise to God. I'm going to show my gratitude for what he's done. So I'm going to give God and his priests this amount of money, which by the way, it was a large amount of money and it might have been way more helpful to them than actually handing them a baby, right? And so the next six verses of or seven verses or so at the beginning of chapter 27 describe exactly how much you could give. And it talks about these shekels. A shekel was an amount of money at that time. And there's actually different amounts for boys and different amounts for girls. There's different amounts for, for depending on the age 
of your son that you want to dedicate to God. And it's probably all based on the practical worth of someone in that society, not their inherent worth, right? It's just based on a person's capacity to contribute or do physical work, which is the way things would have been seen in that society. That was what was most important. So um, if you promise to give a son to God, if he's this age, that's how much he's worth. If he's this age, that's how much he's worth. It's basically like, here's an exchange rate, a way to quantify and calculate the value of what you promised to God. And so it goes on to talk about other kinds of promises. Verse 9, if what they vowed is an animal that is acceptable as an offering to the Lord. And then there's instructions about animals. And uh, if you want to give or if you promise to give an animal to God and you want to know how much that animal is worth and you want to give the equivalent amount of money, here's how you can do that. Verse 14, if anyone dedicates their house as something holy to the Lord, and then there's instructions about how to how to give your house or give the equivalent amount of money uh, for your house. Uh, Verse 16, if anyone dedicates to the Lord part of their family land. Verse 22, if anyone dedicates to the Lord a field they have bought, which is not part of their family land. And so we won't read all the details, but these are all the options of things that people might dedicate to God. And this sounds strange to us. It's a bit of an odd concept. And, and here's why I think it's, it's odd to us. Because most of us, what we get in life, we tend to think that we've gotten it ourselves. We've earned it. We've worked for it. We deserve it, right? And it's not that we're trying to be uh, selfish or, or self-centered. It's just that we have all grown up in a culture with the sense that I'm going to reach a certain age and I'll get married, right? I'll get a wife or a husband and then I'll have children and we'll have a family and I'll get a good job and I'll have a good income and we'll buy a nice house and we'll have all these nice possessions and we'll be able to go on these vacations and do these things, that all of these things are normal. And if I just work hard, then I will get all of those things. But in ancient Israel, it was a very different perspective. There was a genuine sense that children are 100% a gift from God. Nobody is entitled to have children. Nobody deserves to just have them. Nobody should just assume they're going to have lots of children. Children are 100% a gift from God. That the land you're given, it's 100% a gift from God. In fact, it's not even your land. It's God's land. He's letting you live on it. He's letting you plant your crops in that field. And any fruit that your trees produce, any crops that the field yields, any money that you earn, all of it is a gift from God. And so what this chapter is saying is that on a regular basis, Israel is invited to take all of those gifts that God has given to them, gifts God has given to me, and then give some of them back to him, dedicate some of them back to him. And that's what this language of, of dedicating this house or this land or these animals or, or these children to God, it's all about. Now, there are some things that are already dedicated or given to God. Verse 26 says, No one, however, may dedicate the firstborn of an animal since the firstborn already belongs to the Lord. 
So, so the firstborn ox this year, or the firstborn goat, or the firstborn sheep, you were already supposed to give that to God. That was just expected. That was already built into the system of Leviticus. Everyone should have some level of gratitude when they have new sheep or new oxen or new goats every year. And so what Leviticus 27 is kind of saying is, um, pretend that you have 10 new sheep that are born into your flock this year. You give the first one to God. That's what you're always supposed to do because you're so grateful. Because God gave you 10 new sheep this year. So you give the first one to God. So, so that's not an extra gift. But if you're extra grateful and you just want to show your gratitude to God, maybe you give your second and your third sheep to God as well. I mean, he gave us 10 of them, right? How amazing is that? And so you take sheep number one to the temple or to the tabernacle, your firstborn sheep to the priest there, but you also take sheep's number two and three out of a sense of gratitude, out of a sense of saying, everything is yours, God, and so I want to dedicate number two and three to you as well. Or maybe you take the equivalent amount of money that numbers two and three are worth and you give that to the priests. And at the tabernacle, you hand all this to the priests and you say, God blessed us so richly this year. All of these gifts come from God. And so we just want to give some of this back to you to use for God's purposes. And this idea is unpacked just a little bit more. Look at verse 30. Uh, It says this, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And then verse 32, Every tithe, tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. So this word tithe, is mentioned here, and tithe is explained in more detail in other passages, but it's the very simple idea that one-tenth, that's what the word tithe means, it just means one-tenth, one-tenth of what you produce on the land, whether it's grain or fruit, and one-tenth of the new animals in your flock or your herd, every single year, you give these to God. You just give one-tenth, right in the beginning, you just, give, you just take one-tenth, and before you do anything with anything else, you take one-tenth and you give it back to God out of gratitude, right? Because any new animals you had this year, any new crops you harvested, any new fruit that, that grew on your trees this year are gifts from God. And so you begin with this sense of gratitude. And, and practically speaking, these gifts played an important role. This tithe played an important role. It supported everything that happened at the tabernacle. It supported the priests, because they didn't own fields. They couldn't plant crops. They couldn't make their own money. So this is your way of supporting the priests and everything that happens there. And so this whole chapter starts with this idea of if you've made a vow or a promise to God, but really the entire chapter is about gifts that you give to God and the rules and regulations for how to give these gifts things you've dedicated to him or just gifts that you have, tithes that you have, how to do that well. And then verse 34 concludes by saying, these are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. So here's the closing statement. This is the wrap-up of the entire book. 
which don't forget, we kind of already got that at the end of chapter 26, right? So that felt like the end, but now we're really at the end. It's saying these are the most important instructions. This is a book of instructions and commands that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai so that they could be his holy people. Now, the reason this final chapter is so important, and I think the message it has for us at the end of this journey is wrapped up in the question of why it's included in the first place. Because as I said, it feels a bit like an add-on. In, in some ways, in fact, it's anticlimactic, right? I mean, chapter 26 is this ends with this thundering description of all the horrible things that are going to happen to you if you don't follow all of the instructions. And then chapter 27 is kind of like, oh yeah, here's just a few more rules about promises and gifts. So whoever did the final editing of this book, and there was certainly an editor, right? Or probably a group of editors. And it's, as we said, scholars have sort of figured out, it's almost certainly a group of priests during the exile, who took all of the rules and the regulations that were given to Mount Sinai and that that they had been trying to live by, that the priests had been trying to live by for, for hundreds of years, right? And they arranged them into this book of Leviticus in order to say to the people in exile, here's what happened. We got away from these rules. We need to get back to following God's instructions in order to become God's holy people again. And so when they put all this stuff together into this final book, the, the form that we have it today, the question is, why did the editors add this final section on promises and gifts? And, and why, did they, why didn't they put it somewhere else? Why did they add it at the end after the more climactic section on blessings and consequences? Here's one theory. The chapter 26 ends on a bit of a sour note, right? It's kind of a downer to end the whole book with this long description of punishments and consequences. And so maybe chapter 27 is added in there because the priest thought, man, we need to end this on a bit more of a positive note. Let's put the section about promises and gifts at the end instead. That's one theory. Uh, Here's another theory, and this is interesting. Chapter 26 is about God's promise to Israel. It's like God's vow to Israel. Here's what I'm going to do. If you keep the covenant, here's my vow to you. If you break the covenant or violate the covenant, here's what I promise to do. And then chapter 27 is the opposite. It's about Israel's promises or vows to God. So there's this symmetry between these final two chapters. And while I think both of those theories are, are helpful and at some level true, right? Um, chapters 26 and 27, they, they balance each other out, right? They, they, they reflect that this is a, a relationship and that as much as uh, God will do what he says he'll do in chapter 26, there's also this invitation to Israel to, to, to make vows and promises of what they're going to do For God, in chapter 27, there's this balance between these two chapters. I think that's a helpful way of seeing it. And of course, it's always better to end on a more positive note than on a negative note. So maybe that's why chapter 27 is in there. But here's one more thought. 
And I think it's a really important one. As we wrap up this journey through Leviticus, it's the observation that chapter 27 effectively returns us back to how the entire book started. Do you remember how the book begins? In chapter 1 of Leviticus, here are the gifts and the offerings that you can bring to God. If you want to draw near to God, here's the gifts and the offerings. And remember the first gifts and offerings that are described? They're voluntary gifts. They're offerings that you bring to God with joy and gratitude. They're offerings that you bring to God in order to draw closer to Him. They're offerings that you simply bring to God as gifts to Him. And it's like the entire book now returns to that very idea. Here are some voluntary vows, some dedications, some promises, some gifts that you can offer to God. And it's as if the entire book is saying, like, don't forget, this is a relationship that is based on gifts. It begins and ends with gifts that Israel can bring to God. And in the middle are a whole bunch of instructions. And yes, their laws and their commandments and their decrees. And many would use the word rules to describe everything in the middle. But there's a sense that these two are gifts. All of these instructions are God's gift to Israel. Here's how to experience the new life that I have for you. It's a gift that I have for you. And yes, yes, the gift involves following some instructions. <laughs> you have to do these things in order to experience the gift of new life, the gift of liberation, the gift of land, the gift of being this unique and holy and sacred community in the world, the gift of introducing a new order into the world. You're not going to experience the life that I have for you and the gift that I have for you if you don't follow these instructions. And so the instructions in the first half of the book are centered around these really important rituals to follow, and the instructions in the second half of the book are, are centered on these, these ethics of everyday life, everyday living. But in the end, here's what Hebrew scholar Samuel Ballantyne writes, I love this sentence. In the end, he says, Leviticus dares to hope and believe that both God's commands and Israel's opportunity for faithful response to them are a gift and not a burden. Leviticus dares to hope and believe that the commands and Israel's response, they're a gift. They're not a burden. It's a gift. It's an invitation. And it's easy for us to see the book of Leviticus as a bunch of rules, but, but it's essentially saying, hey, we're going to start with gifts, and we're going to end with gifts, so that you always remember this is about a gift. It's about an invitation. It's like Jesus, when he shows up and he says, hey, 
Come to me. I have a gift for you. I want to give you new and abundant and overflowing and eternal life. If you are tired and burned out trying to get that on your own, if you are worn out, come to me. I'm not going to weigh you down with burdens. I want to offer you something that's light and life-giving. I have a gift of life to give to you. Now, that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy or that things will always go perfectly in your life or that you don't have to do anything because my way is a different way. And here's what it looks like, Jesus says on all of his teachings, here's what it looks like to follow my way. But remember that it is always a gift. It's always a gift. And so we come to the end of our study, to the end of our exploration of Leviticus and the gift and the invitation that it offers to each one of us. And in the words of T.S. Eliot, who wrote this in one of his famous poems, He said, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And so we have arrived once again where we started with the gift of God's invitation to be his holy people and to bring his new order into the world. And so as we wrap up, may you receive this blessing. May the end of this journey feel like a new beginning, a new start, a day of cleansing, a year of jubilee. May you not cease from exploring the depths of God's gift, God's invitation into a new life, May you find that new life within sacred community. For life does not grow apart from sacred community. And along the way, on the journey, whether at home or in the wilderness, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.